0: Maybe seated. We continue today our journey through First Samuel. I, I will I will note that that it says in your on your bulletin that it, we're in chapters twenty five and twenty six is actually incorrect. If you remember where we were last week and you look where we are this week, we are not skipping twenty four. We are in chapter twenty four today. I apologize for that. And this is, as Sharon shared with us, this is the story of Saul and David in the cave together. I have got to stop telling these ladies what the text is for the day because they preach my sermon before I even get up here. And probably do a better job than I do. But we are, in, we are going to be in Psalm Excuse me, it's First Samuel chapter 24. Just to, to locate us in the story, if you, if you don't know where we are in the story, first uh, Samuel is this, is this story about Israel's search for a king. And they decide they want a king, and so they ask God to give them a king like the other nations, and God gives them what they asked for in Saul. And very quickly it becomes clear that Saul is, is not a man after God's own heart, that Saul, that Saul will not be the king that they need. He may have been the king they wanted, but he's not the king that they need. And so Samuel, the prophet, Samuel goes back out on God's command and anoints David to be king. And then we have the story of David in the lion's den and David comes into Saul's court, and very quickly, Saul becomes jealous of David. And he seeks to kill David, and he conspires against David. And what we saw last week was so that David leaves the royal household, and he he goes out into the wilderness, and these men begin to gather around him, That's where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We are going to read the whole chapter. So I'm going to ask, as we do, if we'll stand as we read the word, but I understand that it might be long, so if you need to sit at some point or stay seated, that's okay. But if you can, will you stand with me as we read God's word together? When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told... David is in the wilderness near En-Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, the cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I will never do such a thing to my Lord and the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul then Saul left the cave and went on his way after that David got up went out of the cave and called to Saul my lord the king when Saul looked behind him David let knelt low with his face on the ground and paid homage David said to Saul why do you listen to the words of people who say look David intends to harm you You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I did not kill you. Recognize that I have committed no crime or rebellion. I have not sinned against you even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after, a dead dog, a single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me even though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what is good, what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you have done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we come before you this morning, as we open your word to study, to read, and to learn. God, I pray that you would illuminate it for us. May we see the truth that is in it. May we hear the message that you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it might be hard for us to to identify with this the overall story in 1 Samuel. after all, how many of us are out there looking for a king? You might even think, you might even think to yourself that you know you're, you're, not, you're not even all that political. I mean, you pay attention every couple of years when it comes time to vote, maybe, but but you you don't really care all that much. But see, here's, here's what Israel doesn't understand. Is, is they're not looking for an earthly king. They think they're looking for an earthly king. But what they're really looking for is, is they're looking for a king, for a lord of their life. They're looking, they're looking for God. They've displaced him. We, we talked about that, right? How, 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 in my opinion, one of the saddest Verses of Scripture is the last verse of the book of Judges, which comes immediately prior to the story of Samuel, which says, "And in those days there was no king in Israel." The problem is there is a king in Israel. The king is God. The king is Yahweh, and yet they refuse to understand and see and recognize that. They're looking for is they're they're looking for for someone to 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 hang the the core of their life on. They're looking for for happiness and and security. Even even for people, for those of us who aren't particularly religious, we, we still want that, right? We want something that we can hang our lives onto. We want fulfillment and security and happiness. What we have seen over the last several weeks last couple of months, as we've been making our way through Samuel, is that the story of David ultimately points us to the true king, to Jesus. The only king who can actually deliver on the demands that all too often we ask of others. The demands that Israel is asking of their earthly, worldly King. As Sharon pointed out this morning, this is a a story in which David has to choose a path. David has to make a choice in this story. How many times do we find ourselves in life having to make a choice? To make a turn one way or the other. Down a road. When I went down this, this week to, to see Taylor, I will admit I, I have not gone to the hospital in Florence very often. Most of the time, when I go to the hospital, right, I go to Lumberton or I go to Dillon. I haven't been to Florence very often. And the last time I went, I went with Jeff, and Jeff drove, and so I wasn't paying any attention to where we were going. And so I got all kinds of turned around. But I had the GPS on in my car right, and I took a wrong turn, and what, what happens when you take a wrong turn? What's that little voice tell you? Recalculating, recalculating. As soon as it is safe, take a U-turn. To which my response is, have you seen the way people in South Carolina drive? There is no safe. It's great, right? I mean, I, mean, I think we've all become maybe a little over-dependent on GPS. Most of us are going to remember paper maps. One or two people here maybe who don't. But most of us right because of our phone, we don't worry about paper maps. We don't worry about going to MapQuest or Google Maps and printing out the turn by turn directions. Remember when we used to do that? My dad was so excited the day he had to no longer pay US uh, not USA, AAA to give him his trip tick turn by turn instructions. He could just go on and do it himself. Now we've got turn by turn in our pocket all the time. And what happens sometimes, right, is we do. We take a wrong turn and we end up in the wrong, the wrong place. We, we miss the instructions. We, we enter the wrong destination. That's what happened to me. I thought I entered the hospital and somehow it took me down to where all of the, the stuff is, the exit where all the big box stores are. I still don't know how that happened. But, right, I, I entered the wrong destination in, so I ended up in the wrong place. We do that in our lives, right? We, we enter the wrong destination in, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. But, but maybe when we, when we get it right, we hear that word recalculating, redirecting, turn around. I, I think we probably all wish that God was as direct and as clear as. I, the wonderful, my, my GPS voice is always British because it's harder for me to get mad for some reason at a British voice. Unfortunately, God doesn't often tell us to say, turn around, not that clearly, not that audibly. And so we can find ourselves in a tension between where we are and where we think we're supposed to be. Sometimes we think we know where we're headed. We have to figure out which path to take and which to avoid. The question we ask ourselves in those moments is, are we going to do what I have a tendency of doing when I'm in the car and just say, well, I don't know where I'm going, so I'm going to turn here or we have the patience, like David does, to wait, to hear from God. You know, when we see David here in t- chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, his life is not going well. He is hiding in a cave with about three to 400 other men. If any of you have ever been In the men's locker room at the gym, you got an idea how bad David's life is going at the moment. Stanky. I mean, this is a man who has been anointed to be king. And what happens immediately? As soon as he's anointed, what happened? His daddy sends him back out into the pasture to watch the sheep. And then his his daddy sends him like 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 an Uber Eats driver to take lunch to his brothers who have gone to fight the Philistines. And while he's there, he hears the challenge of Goliath. He responds. He goes out. He slays, with the power of God, the Philistine giant. He's adopted into Saul's royal household. He marries the daughter of the king. And then the king tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. David's life is not Going well. You know, I'm kind of glad that my life is never going to be narrated and put in the Bible. Can you imagine what it would be to have this awkward bathroom story of yours recorded, canonized for all time? Because that is... What's happening here? Saul comes in to, to use the restroom. He, he goes into the cave because he's, he's the king. He wants to, to hide from his men. He's in a vulnerable position, right? Probably the most vulnerable position he could be in. He's by himself. He, he may not even be armed. And he is focused on other things. And so, some of David's men who are with him say, look, look, this is what God has said that He will deliver him over to you. And so David does exactly what Sharon said he does. He he sneaks up on Saul. He raises his knife, and then he cuts a corner from his robe. See, what, what David is dealing with, right, is he's dealing with this, with this, do I do the will of God, or do I give in to my, my, my desires and my circumstances? You know, it's, it's easy for us to confuse our desires and our circumstances for the will of God, right? It's one of the reasons that I am skeptical when I hear people say, well, God said this to me, and it just so happens to line up exactly with what they would have said if they had been saying it themselves. We all know somebody like that, right? Well, God said that it's time for me to buy a Cadillac. Really? Because just last week you were telling me how much you wanted a Cadillac. One of the increasing things that my pastor friends are talking about is the number of of married people who are coming coming to them, men and women, and they've been engaged in an affair, and they say, well, he treats me so much better than my husband does. The spark is there where it's not, this obviously is God's will for me to leave my husband or my wife. Ladies, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. It goes both ways. We confuse our desires and our circumstances with the will of God. Now, I want to be clear I'm not saying that God does not guide us, I'm not saying that God does not prompt us. I'm not saying that God can't use our circumstances and our desires to point us in the direction that he wants us to go. What I'm saying is we need to be careful not to confuse us with him. And to remember what the ultimate standard that we have to weigh everything against is. God's word. Only When we allow the Scriptures to to take primacy, can we rightly interpret our desires and our circumstances? And so here are the circumstances. The circumstance is Saul has been delivered in this very vulnerable position to David. David's desire is to no longer be in a cave with 300 other men. And the man who is standing between him and his desired outcome, circumstances has delivered to him. The men who are with David interpret this as God's will. And so what we hear is that he gets up and he cuts and and we're told immediately that his conscience bothers him. His conscience bothers him that he had so much as cut a corner off of Saul's robe. And so he turns to his men, and he says, I swear before the Lord I would never do such a thing against my Lord. And if, you, if you're reading it, you'll see the first Lord there is capital L-O-R-D, and, and the second. So, so he, he swears to, to Yahweh I would never do such a thing to my king. The Yahweh's anointed. I will never lift my hand against Him since He is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David persuaded his men not to rise up against Saul. See, the men that are there, they want David to do it, but they're perfectly happy to do it themselves because guess what? Each one of them is stuck in a cave with 300 other men too. When we, when we look at verse 4, we, we see the, this, this word it's translated as David got up. David got up and secretly cut off. It indicates that, that David has made a, a clear decision. He's not just telling us that he's standing up, right? He's, he's telling us that, that he's, he's made a choice, The choice he has made is not the choice that the men around him think that he's made. The choice that he's made is not to kill Saul, but to shame him, humiliate him, show him that he is not a threat. David's men are perplexed, dumbfounded at what has happened, right? It would make sense for David to, to To have killed Saul. by 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 the reckoning of the world, that was the thing to do. After all, David is God's anointed king. But what David knows is that Saul is also God's anointed king. And that even if Saul is murderously wrong and a murderer himself, that it's not for David to take matters into his own hands. Killing Saul would have solved all of David's problems. But David knew that to strike Saul in the cave would be contra to the will of God. He refuses to succumb to the worldly wisdom that the ends justify the means. How often in our own world do we hear that? Do we we live that out? The ends justify the means. David is pointing out to his men and to us that doing wickedness makes one wicked no matter how justified we feel when we do it. You know, most of us are never going to be in a situation as unique and remarkable as David. I, I am willing to go out on a limb and guess that no one within the sound of my voice is ever going to find themselves the God's anointed king hiding in a cave with the opportunity to kill your rival. Can we, can we agree that the, the likelihood of that is nil? No. But, but there are absolutely times and events and moments in our lives where, where we try and take it into our own hands and we don't trust in God enough to wait. So we, we take things into our own hands and we end up going in the wrong direction, taking the wrong action. We think that we're headed in the right place. The the prospects are promising, but the results never satisfy us. You know, our, our culture despises waiting. We're really bad at it. You know, when you go anywhere, you see it at the grocery store with like the candy and stuff, but you go to just about any retail establishment, you know, there's always something kind of small right there, you know, small, low cost, right there at the register. If any of you have ever worked retail, you know that that's called the impulse buys. That's what we call them in retail. Because the idea is is that we know that people don't have any impulse control. And so, you know, you're checking out, you've got got $160 worth of groceries, which these days is like a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk. But but the pack of gum is only 65 cents. So you put it down. Now, you know, for you, maybe it's not the end of the world, 65 cents, but guess what? That adds up over time for the store. We don't we don't like waiting, and and I will admit that I am perhaps not the most patient person on the planet. Thank you, Linda. Hey, at least it wasn't Audrey who laughed that loud. But I'm not. I'm okay. I'm not okay with it. I'm okay telling you that. Because <laughs> you know it. I don't, I don't like waiting. There are two, two meanings to the word wait. The, the first is inaction. I'm just going to sit here. And I think that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of, of weight. But the, the second is attentive readiness. And what I'll offer is that's what God wants from us. He wants attentive readiness. He doesn't want inaction. Okay? So you go to Waffle House. You have a waitress, right? And you can have a good waitress in Waffle House, but but she's probably not the most attentive, right? I mean, Waffle House is a place, it's perfectly fine to flag them down. Hey, I need more ketchup, I need more drink, I need more, right? Because she's got like 17 other tables and she's making an omelet and she's washing dishes, you know, and you know, in most Waffle Houses these days also breaking up a fight. And that's fine, right? But that's the kind of waiting that you get. But If you go to a, to a, a five-star restaurant, what's the wait staff going to do, right? At a five-star restaurant, you are expecting to never have to flag the waiter down and say, can you refill my water? At a five-star restaurant, you, you, your expectation, right, is that the waiter is going to anticipate your needs, that the waiter is going to be sitting there in readiness waiting on you. I think these are a good illustration of the two kinds of, of waiting, And what what God asks of us, not to be Waffle House waitstaff, but to be five-star waitstaff. To wait on him in anticipation and readiness. To see what's coming. You know, for me to tell you to be patient is one thing. But to to give to you some some resources to actually be patient in crazy times is another. I think it's interesting that that Psalm 57 that we read earlier is a resource for us in patience. Be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me. To me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. I will call on God the Most High to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He reaches down from heaven and saves me and challenges the one who tramples me. God sends his faithful God sends his faithful love and truth. I am surrounded by lions. I lie down with those who devour men, their teeth are spears. And arrows, their tongues are sharp swords. God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over the whole earth. My heart is confident. God, my heart is confident. I will sing. I will sing your praises. Saul, David's writing this in the cave at the moment. So we, we get four, four sort of ideas, four sort of words from Psalm Fifty-seven that can characterize the patient heart. The first of these is sovereignty. In verse 2, David points out that God fulfills His purpose for me. It's not necessary, despite what has been said, for David to break God's commands to get where God wants David to go. God is going to get David there. Because God is sovereign. Moving to verse 3, we see an expression of Faithful love. And this is important because sovereignty without assurance of love can feel like, like fate, blind fate. It can lead to a, a resigned attitude that that God is sovereignty but not desiring the good for our lives. This is what the Gospel does for us. It gives us an assurance of steadfast love that nothing else can. Because of Jesus' death on a cross, we never have to wonder how God feels about us. We know. We have a demonstration in time. A particular moment where the Son laid down His life for us. And so when, when circumstances conspire to make us feel abandoned or condemned, We only have to look to the cross, see a God who who took on abandonment, who took on condemnation for us. All that is left for us who believe is goodness and mercy. When we get to verse 5, we see a kind of selflessness. David says, God be exalted above the heavens, let your glory be over the whole earth. I mean, Saul is seeking David. He's hunting David down. He he says that he feels like lions are hunting him, and yet he still lifts his eyes to pray for something bigger than just relief. He prays for God's exaltation. Whether his prayer leads to rescue or more pain, David is less concerned with himself than he is with God. This is, again, one of the primary differences between Saul and David. Would Saul have written this psalm, this prayer, and in the middle of it exalted God? No, it would have all been about Saul, wouldn't it? It's the difference between Saul and David. And finally, we see satisfaction. David uses the word confident to return, to refer to his own faithfulness, not God's. The two are connected. God can be faithful toward God because he knows God that faith is faithful towards him. The, the backbone, the, the center of obedience is confidence in the faithful love of God. Assurance of that love leads to satisfaction. And a lack of assurance can lead to revenge and stolen pleasures and compromise so when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, tempted to sin because of our impatience, we are failing in one of these four areas. We, we don't believe that God is really sovereign. We're not convinced of His steadfast love. We, we still, like Saul, think that our lives are all about ourselves or we're not truly satisfied with God's approval of us. When we feel that, that tug to to head in the wrong direction, to take the wrong turn, to circumvent God's way, we should ask ourselves, why is God's love and approval not enough for me? Our impatience ultimately goes back to a failure to believe the Gospel. Let me say that again. and I want you to remind, remember my own confession of impatience. Impatience ultimately goes back to a failure to believe the gospel. We either do not understand how God feels about us, or we fail to value his approval highly enough. And it has us teetering on the precipice of disaster, entertaining a quick fix solution to a situation that we don't like. Brothers and sisters, resist the urge to take that step. Trust in the all-satisfying God and wait on his goodness. As we come to the table this morning, I'll ask our deacons to begin to come forward. As we